However far we've evolved, there are still powerful and age-old stories being told to us. On television, in advertising, social media, stories are used to constantly tell us what we must collectively aspire to. And for women in particular, one of the most powerful that's been told for centuries is about physical beauty. Beauty's white, beauty is slim, beauty is able-bodied. It's also affluent enough to keep up with trends and taste. But how many of us really feel we fit these archetypes? Not many. To combat that, we've entered an age of body positivity. And while the discussion may have opened up to some degree, there's still a long way to go before we can reach that level of inclusivity that genuinely allows us to feel good. Women are filled with a constant and exhausting sense of failure. Whatever representation there is in wider culture, it's our internal stories that are still full of self-loathing. And for younger women in particular, this is even more powerful. Those who have come of age with social media are judged again and again by their visual representation. Have you heard about the latest hashtag trending on TikTok? Body checking. It has six million views and counting. And it involves young women examining and critiquing their weight, skin folds and even the circumference of their wrists. For all the positive talk, we've gone backwards. The prison of physical beauty seems even more confining today than it ever was. And whether it's physical beauty or any other standardised set of ideals about the perfect woman that's been created for us, the echo chamber of mass media and the algorithm feels like an inescapable weight. My guest today is brilliantly and intelligently dismantling all of this. She's sharp, inquisitive and wonderfully articulate as she questions and pushes against so many of the stories we're still being told. Society has no script on how to deal with a fat, chronically ill woman in her 20s who refuses to accept invisibility, Ione Gamble has written. Because of that, the potential to write my own narrative is infinite. Ione is a writer, editor and art director. She's the founder of the feminist scene Polyester, hosts a podcast, and her first book, Poor Little Sick Girls, A Love Letter to Unacceptable Women, was published earlier this year. She is also, in her own words, a gross girl. Diagnosed weeks after her 19th birthday with Crohn's disease, a debilitating inflammatory bowel condition, Ione's young adult life has been shaped by illness, hospital wards, and the impact of all this on her body. She also grew up, again in her own words, in a poor household and brilliantly dismantles the class dynamics of good taste. For her, the taste hierarchy is nothing more than a well-crafted lie, maintained to help the same narrow group of people cling on to power with their cold, dead hands. I only smashing many hierarchies apart piece by piece, a beautiful misfit working to create a new, better and wonderfully technicolor world. This is Beautiful Misfits. I'm Mary Portis, and this is Ione Gamble. Welcome, Ione. Hello. Welcome. What an introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, does it sum it up? <laughs> yeah, better than I could, a bit of what I could, because some of it was from the book. But yeah, very nice to hear back. You're a prolific essayist, and... Um, I think what makes your work so potent is the fact it comes from this real place in terms of working out how to live your truth, mm -hmm. which we're all on 
Mm-hmm. And boy, I'm a lot older than you, and I'm still on that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't stop. It, it's a work in progress. But there's a series of events that obviously led you to where you are. But can you just take me back to your childhood? Tell me little Ione with this red hair. Were you a little redhead as a kid? <laughs> I was, yeah, but then it went to a mousy brown and I've yeah. been dying it back to yeah. ginger as an adult. <laughs> I did that and now I've given up. So, um, But just take me back. Tell me where you grew up, how... So I grew up in Brighton with my mum and my two sisters. Um, Where were you in the family? I'm the oldest. (laughs) I think it kind of comes through (laughs) in the way I behave. But yeah, I'm the oldest. My mum was a single mum. We grew up, yeah, like not having that much money, but we were in Brighton. It's such like a rich cultural place. And my mum is a very creative person. And I grew up. What did she do? She was like an administrator at my school and now she works with her boyfriend on his music projects. So she's amazing. But growing up, she would write a lot as well. Like we wrote children's books together. When I was like tiny, she would illustrate and I would write them. She definitely instilled in me to be able to be creative in that way. But I wasn't really sure exactly what my path would be. She was always very intent on like, you're a writer, you're so good at writing. And I was like, no, I want to be a photographer. I want to be a stylist. Like when I found out what all these kind of jobs were in fashion, I was like, I want to do something visual. When I was 15 and you have to choose your GCSEs, I was like, right, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go to that university and then I'm going to have this job. And it was very like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah, quite intense for a teenager. But when just just going back to your home, so where was your father in all this? So my parents divorced when I was around 10 years old and I just don't have a relationship with him. The, Do you remember that divorce? I mean, was it? Yeah, I remember it quite well, yeah, because I was the oldest as well, especially, and it was quite a, like fraught divorce I would Mm. say and it lasted quite a long time and it was in the courts for a long time as well but with you yeah there was like custody battles as well and I think it instilled a lot of independence in me not independence from my family but independence in my own ideas independence in what I thought and independence in how I wanted my life to be in what way talk to me about that basically I didn't want to see my dad once he left the family home and He obviously wanted to see us, like, of course, that's very natural. But I'd seen, you know, the way he treated us as a family and all of this other stuff, the way he was treating my mum in terms of, like, taking money away from us, making it very difficult, basically, for us to live happily. Um, Before that happened, though, before the breakup, mm -hmm. were you happy with him or did you always feel, God, this isn't right? I think it's really hard to remember because obviously I was like under 10 years old. and I think around like eight to 10 is probably when most of your core memories form. But I definitely didn't have a bad childhood, like not when he, he was away a lot. He worked a lot. And I definitely wasn't unhappy as a child in that respect. I think it all kind of kicked off when they started getting divorced, basically. Right. Um, it's interesting because I often speak to people of divorced parents and the kids didn't feel it or didn't know. Mm. So it was either well hidden. But then it's such a shock when it happens. Like, well, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. Or they have felt it and they're like relief when it's actually Right. Gets... No, it was definitely like the former that, yeah, I didn't really know. But I feel like it was great because I got to grow up in a very matriarchal family my family is very full of women like it's my grandma my auntie we're all kind of women there's not really many men around and I found that empowering is a horrible word now but like I found that I could find my voice basically through being lifted up by all of them and being in this environment that was very supportive even when it was difficult was very enveloping of letting us all be who we want to be. Me and my sisters are all very, very different people. Like my sister, who's just one younger than me, works in the House of Commons. And then my younger sister has just graduated with a film degree. So we're all very, very different. But we all kind of have that same drive, I think, is what links us together. Yeah. And that matriarchy that you talk about, 
Because there is a difference when you have the patriarchy there because it invariably sets the tone mm-hmm. and the energy of the household, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you were younger, though, did you ever have this feeling of being a misfit? Or did you just see life as it was and just around you and I'm okay and this is great? I think it was something that I definitely gravitated towards when I was growing up. I remember going to secondary school and me and my mum and my sisters went to the supermarket and I was like, no, you have to buy me all new black clothes because I'm going to be a goth when I go to secondary school. And it was kind of like as simple as that. I decided so that what I was going to be and that's how I was going into that situation, pointing out for myself before someone else could, if that makes sense. Pointing what out then? That I did want to be different. I suppose I wanted to be, yeah. It was where I felt drawn to, if that makes sense. I felt drawn to paving my own way and I suppose that does mark you as different because a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people would like to fit in. Obviously, I got to that school and it was like a horrible nightmare because I was bullied so badly. Were you? Yeah, and I ended up having to move school, which was good because then I met more people that were similar. Was it a mixed school, boys and girls? It was, yeah. Well, how did the bullying take hold? It was with other girls, yeah. And I was literally only there for like nine months. It was like the first nine months of year seven. And yeah, it was just how girls are. I went to a very small primary school. It was one class per year. So I wasn't really used to being around a lot and a lot of people, I think. And then, yeah, they just bullied me for the way I looked, I suppose. Like, different things about me I can't remember properly now, but I remember needing to, like, leave, and then I moved school. Sorry, you dressed as a goth, which is actually saying, look at me. Yes. Look at me, with, and I'm different from you. Mm -hmm. But were you choosing that look of me because you felt a pain inside or different, or were you just choosing that look of me because you wanted to express something that wasn't you know, creative enough in your life and wanted to express yourself through a look, through a physical expression. I think it's the, like, latter that you said because, you know, we grow up and we watch teen films, watch all these shows, blah, 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 and kind of entering into teenagehood is this chance, you know, this chance to start becoming who you are. And obviously teen films and shows do show, like, the downside to that, but it is always spun as this, like, wildly emancipating thing that you can go, oh, look, it's me, I'm here, I've arrived. Yeah. But then, obviously, when you're um, 12 or whatever, you don't have the emotional capacity to deal with when that backfires. And girls on mass bullying is just the worst. Yeah. It is absolutely <laughs> the worst. So shortly after leaving home for university, you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is a malfunctioning immune response that affects your digestive system. And in your book, Poor Little Sick Girls, you write saying, like death, illness fascinates society in a perverse way. We never want to experience its effects ourselves, but can't look away from those who do. Mm. My rotting insides were becoming impossible to hide as my skin morphed into a grim shade of grey. I could barely walk without twisting an ankle and my eyes were set in hollows of deep blue that told the world just how sleep-deprived I really was. As I came to more closely resemble a corpse bride than a woman blooming into adulthood... I slowly realised I was becoming the thing that I'd always feared. I was a gross girl. When you say that, I find, whoa, (laughs) you know, and we'll get on to that definition. But not only were you dealing with the disease's impact on your health, but you realised that it would change the way that others saw you Mm -hmm. and perceived you. And I was thinking about this, this argument that it's not people who are disabled, but it's the society that disables you by what they have set. They're not accepting difference through whatever form it is. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we are taught 
to want to conform, as we've already touched upon. So then anyone who is different for whatever reason is a threat and scary, intimidating and not a like girl boss power way, like actually threatens what most people think is existence. And I say in the book that like I didn't realise that chronic illness was even a thing until I was diagnosed with one. Like I thought you either have a terminal condition or you get better. I didn't realise there was this whole group of people. Obviously I knew disabled, like physically disabled people exist, but I didn't really realise there was this kind of murky middle ground where people like live with illness their whole life and what that means. So I think when I was first diagnosed, I wanted to push against my own diagnosis. Like I didn't really understand what it meant and I didn't see why it should change my life because ultimately I've been living with symptoms for a long time before I had a diagnosis. So I didn't really see any difference to then and now and what I should do. So I kind of like write in the book about how when I was first diagnosed, I discharged myself from hospital to go to university, which is like very silly thing to do I literally had to sign a waiver like if you die then like we can't be blamed sorry but I was so intent of like you know staying on this path wanting to live my life I was very ambitious I was all of these things and then obviously it's not sustainable to live in that way I was seriously ill I was going through intense treatment for Crohn's disease that included steroid infusions and also injections of autoimmune drugs Mm. And I had to find a way to live that was my own way, that wasn't just trying to bend myself to be successful to what everyone else thinks is success. But it's fascinating because amongst all this, you go and you study journalism at UCA. Mm-hmm. Now, you call yourself a gross girl and you go into an industry, the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, please, this <laughs> is the most body conscious. I've spent my life in it. How and why did you go into that industry? You know, I think when I was growing up and when I was a teenager, there was a social media platform called Tumblr that was like really big and it was a microblogging platform. You could post pictures, you could post essays, all of these things. And it was through that platform that I learned to interrogate culture. And what I really enjoyed about it was that it would link screenshots of an 80s film up with a runway collection and it really gave me this critical eye to fashion to be able to pick apart the references, pick apart all of these things and find the culture within it all, like find the way it relates to our lives and it relates to like what we enjoy doing. So I went into my course with that attitude and very, very quickly realised it wasn't really about that. I did learn, you know, how to write a runway report and all of this stuff, but it was a lot about just clothes and bodies and clothes not as like an art form, but clothes as they are, like sales, all of this kind of stuff. Clothes not as an expression, but clothes, let's make some money. As an industry, exactly. But it's interesting because you talked that I was posting selfies in my underwear to Tumblr accompanied by lengthy captions outlining my experience of being unwell. Mm. I used my inner thought. What's the inner thought? Thought. Thought. (laughs) Is that your thought? Inner thought. No, it's like... Just like being sexy, I suppose. Your inner thought. Yeah. Am I a bit... I haven't heard that. <laughs> God, I'm learning something. So you use your inner thought to make sense of my sick, quickly changing body. Perhaps a part of me felt subversive, pairing provocative images with entirely unsexy passages, recounting hospital admissions and calcium tablets. Documenting my shifting appearance on Tumblr helped me regain some of the control I'd lost over myself. You're a very bright girl, so I understand the Tumblr became this wonderful expression for you and you were able to create on it, but surely the fashion industry, and at the time, what year are we talking about? I was diagnosed in 2013. We are still talking about size six and four models on the front of Vogue magazine and most magazines. 
I mean, really, diversity had was starting to come in, starting to mm -hmm. come in, you know, and that meant putting, you know, be mixed race people on. But it was really quite far behind. Mm -hmm. So when you went into that, what did you think and how you would be within that industry? What, were you going in to think, I can make change? Or did you go in quite thinking, the, still the same way that I've been creating on Tumblr, I'm going to take that forward and bring this out into the world? Was that, was that your vision? I think there was a, it was kind of two pronged in that, like, I was doing that on Tumblr, but there was a lot of other people my age doing similar. And it was where I kind of learned about all of these intersectional feminism theories, race theory, like all of this stuff. And it was presented to me in this cultural digest almost because it came with all these other things. It wasn't just like opening a book of an academic book and reading it. It was in our lives. And it was what people were making work about on there. It's like people were making artist collectives. So I really saw this other way of putting forward visual things, fashion, art, whatever, all of those cultural industries. And I do think I also had a bit too much hope in the current industry as it stands. You know, I was like, I'll go to uni, I'll get a job, I'll work my way up, I'll be an editor, blah, 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 blah. And I was obsessed with like indie magazines when I was growing up. So I'd read like Lula magazine and Dazed and ID and all of these things. And I think I gave them too much credit to be intersectional, to be forward thinking, to be diverse and to actually want to make change in those industries. What did you think they were doing? When you were obviously drawn to them, what did you think their role was then? I think that those magazines were and still are like projecting an aspirational model depending on which subsection it exists within. So for the idea in the days, it's youth culture. For Lula, it's kind of, I mean, it doesn't really exist anymore, no. but it was like youth culture when I read it, but like girly youth culture, all of these kind of subsets, but it's all through, none of it's welcoming. It's always like, you can be like us if you try this, if you buy this, if you listen to this, or if you watch this. It's like, you know, an unattainable vision of cool, and it's very seductive and very appealing. So I think I got it confused with actually being youth culture, if that makes sense. Or, yes, being youth culture and, I guess, wanting to actually make fundamental change mm. in an industry. Yeah. yeah which, exactly. which I think you want to do, am I right? Yes. <laughs> so, I, I, no, I think that that's quite important because there is this thing that I, I sort of... When you call yourself a gross girl, I go, why use that language? Because... And I don't know whether it was an anger or a defiance from you, mm. but often a defiance or an anger is a secondary defence to pain. Mm -hmm. And... Are you hiding that, do you think, and still? No, because I think part of... I think we consider a lot of things to be gross, like lots. And I kind of go into, in the chapter, you know, how we've all picked a scab or, like, burst a spot and there's these kind of, like, gross things we all do in secret but we don't really talk about. And obviously there's been, like, a lot of movement, for example, towards periods, people talking about periods openly, and that would have been considered gross when I was in school. So I think... Emotion is definitely a part of that because we are so intent on presenting as someone that has it all together and by accepting grossness in its most like visceral thought forms that I talk about. So my disability, just like what it means to exist as a person, whether you're disabled or not. But it's accepting grossness that society puts the label on grossness, not mm -hmm. what you put that label on. No, exactly. But right. it's literally ingrained in us from birth, isn't it? Like you're taught not to like things, not to do things because it's disgusting. 
Yes, but I was wondering whether you could have done, this is beautiful girl. Actually, this is my expression of beauty, why you had to choose girls. I could see that you could, you're saying, I'm going to be out there, I'm going to be transparent, I'm going to show everything, I'm going to do everything, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about periods, we're going to talk about our spots, we're going to talk about, or, you know, it's the antithesis of the beautiful sort of, you know, look at me on, on social, actually, let's tell the truth. I'm wondering why you, you had to put the title gross on it. Because you're not gross. I think we've seen how doing the whole like self-love, beautiful, everyone is beautiful thing doesn't work. Okay. And how quickly it was co-opted and how quickly the meaning was desaturated from it. So, yeah, we have body positivity now. We have self-love. That has only really allowed for still a very narrow group of women to accept themselves. And I think it has done quite a lot of harm even in terms of like the way we see fat bodies for example always in like the most garish lighting in like a horrible kind of shape fit underwear. Or in their poses as well isn't yeah, it? Yeah exactly it is, yeah. and it's like I don't think we can expand what beautiful is until we confront what we think is ugly and what we think is disgusting and at the end of the day there are many parts of my illness that aren't beautiful <laughs> like you can't really like square having diarrhea all the time as being beautiful because it is shit it's horrible sorry I don't literally know if I can swear. good pun <laughs> it is shit diarrhea is shit that's the title of your next book <laughs> exactly there's so many things to it I think A we need to expand what beautiful is period that's the end goal but B why do we hold beauty up to such a thing that's the only validity we can have as women or as marginalised people. That's a very different thought. That's a huge <laughs> thing though, isn't it? I mean, that is our currency. I talk about this time and time again. I I did a post the other week and I was talking about why is it that women become, you know, we're obsessed with Gen Z. Mm -hmm. We're obsessed with, you're, you're not a Gen Z, you're a millennial. I am. You know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, obsessed, obsessed. How do we talk every brand? How do I get to them? They mm -hmm. forget, you know, that most buying is done by women. Right. And certainly with the income streams above women who are 40. And yet we become invisible. And the more that I talk about, it, the more I realise that the currency, and you'll know this, that we have as women, our currency is youth mm -hmm. and beauty. A male currency is power and success. Vis-a-vis, -vis, you get ugly, fat, overweight men at the top of their game. One was a president. With very young women, because that power is sexy. Like, please, you know, <laughs> please. So we we need to reinvent the feminine power. Mm -hmm. We need to not even reinvent it, bring back. Bring back what you had in your home with the matriarchs mm -hmm. and going, I could be myself. I could say what I wanted. It opened me up to be this. And it created your sense, of, deep sense of self. Because I don't think there is pain. Because I was reading thinking, this must be pain. It's not pain. That's what we want to get back to in the world is the place of women in power and it's truth and it's honesty and it's some of the stuff we don't want to talk about but it's real life yeah totally and I think it's so obvious when now that I've been hiring people in for polyester and all this stuff and building up this team of like women and girls and that in stark contrast to when I was on staff at a magazine is just like worlds away. Um, the way you can kind of build, you so know. So just give an example. So you're on staff at magazine, what, some one of the, the main right, fashion yeah. magazines? So I was freelancing for a while. I did day shifts at like ASOS and lots of other places. And then I kind of landed at this publication, which was one of the like big independent style publications. And I was a staff writer. And... Very quickly, it became very difficult. And part of that is on me because I didn't predict what a full-time job would do to my body. 
But it was also working conditions. So this office had like no daylight at any point. You know, it was discouraged to take lunch breaks, encouraged to stay late, all of the things you hear about anyway, which isn't very good for someone who is chronically ill. And then on top of that, I was put on like morning shifts. So I would have to send in, I think it was three article ideas before midnight the night before, get up at five o'clock, write them which wreaks havoc on your body. And I was only 21 at this point. So like even, and I was ill, of course, but it's still like, it's not healthy way to live. It's not good. Like I'd be in cabs frantically trying to get these ideas over to my editor while my stomach was literally churning and I knew I'd have to run to the toilet and sit there for hours as soon as I got in my flat. Like I was stressed like to death and I got really poorly. But the kind of image of this magazine was, you know, as accepting, cool. inclusive, cool. Edgy. So I tried to, I did, I brought it up with my manager and asked if I could put forward like a flexible working plan. And I did that and I wouldn't have missed any hours. And he, I remember him saying to me, I'm not going to pretend that I know what your illness is, but I acknowledge that it's real. And he would say, I haven't looked up anything about it. And it's kind of like, well, I said that I had this when I interviewed. Surely, even out of like morbid curiosity, you Google. <laughs> like, I feel like if anyone tells me anything that I don't know, I Google it. So... It was very, like, disappointing. I decided to leave, basically, very soon after. And I was really ill by this point. Like, I was about to come off immunotherapy. I had to stay on it. I was not well, so I had to spend a big period of downtime thinking about still working because, like, I don't have the luxury to be able to just sit around. I was freelancing a lot. But kind of really thinking about what my life should look like. And it gave me the kind of drive to give polyester a real go of it, which is my zine, and to really try. A couple mm -hmm. of things I want to ask you on that. One is, actually, even if you weren't ill, those hours are ridiculous. Yes. So the working conditions, you know, and having to get three ideas in before midnight, getting up at five, the stress on women, young women and young men as well is just ridiculous and what a way to work and so an archaic actual mm -hmm. structure that's that's in there and interesting I remember I used to go apart from Vogue House which had beautiful offices but I remember going into many of the fashion offices and they were just yeah, dumps <laughs> dumps dumps let me tell you and that really horrible sort of grey square carpet yeah. and samples stuffed in corners and you'd literally have a sample a cupboard that people tripped over and you were thrown <laughs> into to go through the boxes it's just horrendous rents and yet they were selling mm -hmm. these dreams, these ideas of life that will make you better. And the women in there doing that, we were all part of this. I'm saying we, I mean, I, I knew many, many fashion editors and they were selling the dreams of what we should have. I didn't see any way out, you know. It's kind of like a prize. Like if you get into that yeah. situation, we're taught it's so competitive. It's so all yes. of this that once you're there, then you can live this fantasy that you spend your time selling to other people and it's like well I've made it so I'm good now do you know what I mean and I think that false. attitude is very pervasive and it is false because most of these people are still very underpaid <laughs> at the end of the day and like the industry is still not a good place and even worse you know your sense of self when it came to the fashion shows if you didn't get a front row ticket or second row one you just felt like a bag of shit really. yeah, yeah I only have been to a few and I remember the first one I went to I was so excited for it and it was this designer that I like loved, 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 loved. And I left and I cried because I was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, What was the fuck was it? You expect this moment to be magical. You expect your breath to be taken away. You expect it's like beautiful and moving and all of these things. And it's just a trade show. You know what I mean? There's so much hype built around this moment that at the end of the day, it isn't even selling clothes anymore, is it? Fashion shows, like not really. So it's like everyone's here you watch it for two minutes and then everyone's gone. Like, what is that about? I just didn't know how to process it in my head. 
In defence of them, I've seen some extraordinary shows. I'm sure. Yeah, I just didn't know. see an amazing, amazing yeah. one. So was this the spark that made you want to become an active voice in feminism more broadly? I'm reading here that you say, inside of us is a gross girl, all of us. We have no framework for where our rage can go, what it can do, or the implications of unleashing it. Only through accepting the full nastiness of our world and our complicity within it, we can move forward progressively to a more equal society. I mean, it's very wonderful and very beautiful. I mean, you left. How did you finance yourself? How did you start going on this road and saying, I'm going to create my own magazine? So I'd already started polyester. I was doing both alongside each other. I started polyester in my second year of university. It was a university project, so we had to pitch magazine concepts, basically, and then other members of the class could sign on to it, and you made, like, a dummy issue. So at this time, I was on Tumblr, I was seeing all of this work showing the realities of femininity to me in a way I hadn't seen before, in a way that also felt very new. And I wasn't seeing that echoed in the days, in the IDs, in Wonderland, in any of these places. They weren't picking up on these artists or these ways of thinking or like these frameworks, basically, because it was all through this feminist or like queer feminist lens. And I just thought, why not? So I put that forward for the idea. What's a queer feminist lens? Well, just these people were feminists, but it was also like a lot of queer people, a lot of trans people, like people that were black, that were like across all marginalisations, basically working together. I remember some of the first pictures that I saw editorially of like people in wheelchairs that weren't, you know, able-bodied people in wheelchairs were on Tumblr. And it was just disabled teens like taking pictures of themselves with a film camera. And it was like amazing to see these things kind of play out. And Alongside it, as I already mentioned, was all this theory and all of this way that we could live our lives that felt so different. So I decided to make the publication for it. So I made it. We did issue one and all of the like people I wanted to contributed. So I thought I'll make a go of it. And I spent £200 to print it and £200 to put on a launch night, both from my student loan. Thank you, student finance. And from there, it kind of rolled itself over. So all of the sales would then go back to making the next one and so on and so forth. So I left where I was working in 2016. Then around 2017, I think we got our first commercial job, which was with Converse. I was working freelance a bit commercially before, so I did a zine for the BFI when that suffragette film came out. But Converse was kind of like our first content partnership. So that was when I kind of saw like, oh, this has potential. People think it's very niche, but it's not. There's so many women and people that want to see this kind of content. It's Explain the content. Sure. <laughs> so, no, um, I'm looking at it. Polyester, I mean, our tagline is have faith in your own bad taste. And it's basically like an out and out celebration of femininity, a celebration of being over the top, a celebration of more is more. But it's also more than that because it's about interrogating how we use aesthetics to dismiss or empower people and the politics of aesthetics and imagery and all of these movements that have been or people that have been undermined because of the way they look throughout history and doing that now and I suppose it's like an antidote I'm sure polyester did play a part in that in its early days but and then I think it's important just the more you see something be accepted in a bad way to push against it in the way that you want. I look at it, the visual language, I say it's grimy, it's cute, it's pretty, it's clashy, it's all those kind of things, you know, at the same time. But then also I had this feeling when I was looking at it and just thinking, you know, is this in another way sort of creating another tribe? You know, when I grew up, there were the tribes, the you know, the punks, the goths, you know, uh, the new romantics. 
do you see it as a tribal a subset or do you see it actually, no, I want to push and change society so that this isn't just tribal? I think it's both. So I think on Tumblr that definitely existed. You know, it was like groups of people that made friends with each other through the internet that then pushed out this language and so on and so forth. But I think the potential is so much wider than that and so much bigger than that because we are essentially pushing ideas that everyone should stand for, which is to be inclusive, to like tell stories that haven't been told, to like interrogate the people that have power and why. And I think it's a lot more wide spread unloved than people give people like us credit for I suppose our contributors all of those people they are changing culture and it was just my job to provide a platform for them if that makes sense yeah I was thinking though as well you know back to my time when you know fashion was quite you know tribal and but you physically met in spaces and clubs and uh, there's a part of this is that social's amazing because it can spread and you can grow so well but that sort of coming together It'd be great if you're able to do more of that, you know. But your people who follow and love and connect with it, you're giving them a licence to physically go out and be who they truly are, inside and out. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's like a really good thing that we started kind of from this online culture because we have contributors everywhere and that reflects yeah. into audience as well. So we have a huge audience in the States, for example, and a huge audience here and Japan and all of those places. But then I think a core thing for us to do is to find a way to extend that out from just the online world, because I think things can get so distorted there, so confused, all of these types of things. So we've been working on that. We have always done parties, like always, and they've always been really, really fun. We've also exhibited, like, <laughs> done, like, art exhibitions, panels, all of these types of things. I was thinking things. when you were talking, I don't know, I can think of Tracy Emin and that movement of the art movement where Tracy and that huge movement of mm -hmm. the new contemporary artists which went crazy and wild it feels that there's a reverberation that feels quite similar when I talk to you oh thank you <laughs> that's a big compliment but I feel like it's really important to get people in physical spaces talking to each other like we just had a party two weeks ago for our latest issue launch but we've also started a membership platform so it's like people that are members have a group chat and there's just all these different ways of us communicating with yeah. each other which yeah. I think is important yeah I mean at the end of this what this really gets down to is we need to have a voice for women that is absolutely accepting for us as we are not for what society sets for us that's the end goal so and I, I want to get on to that because we talk about taste and effectively, it's one of those things for years that I have sort of, you know, wrestled with. I'm fascinated by taste and what defines taste. And I suppose what you're trying to express and react against is this sense of presentation. And I, I was reading what you wrote in an article for Rolling Stones, the taste hierarchy is nothing more than a well-crafted lie maintained to help the same narrow group of people cling on to power with their cold, dead hands. That's just hilarious. By smashing it to pieces, a brighter world full of gloriously garish taste is possible. Now, why do you think taste is such a dangerous concept? Because that sounds like this is control here around this. I mean, when we most people would express taste, they think it'd be something beautiful. That's my taste. This is my style. But you see this as very potent and slightly dangerous. I think it's exactly what you just said there. I kind of grew up with this misconception that taste was, it was like a Venn diagram, like lots of different things. They overlap in some places, they don't in others, and you find your little niche and then you live like your happy life with the objects and the clothes that you love. That's definitely like how I grew up and kind of how it was for school for me. 
and with my friends. And then when I got into the fashion industry and started learning more about it, whether it's through uni or, but it was more lived experience, like of being in these offices, of going to these parties. I did realize it was something that's projected onto us rather than something that we are encouraged to seek out ourselves. It's something that we are told that's good taste, that's bad taste, you know, like a lovely Phoebe Philo Celine bag is good taste. And I mean, I can't even think of a fashion is very good taste at the moment, isn't it? But I can't think of a really good it's bad the same taste on example. Age. My sister came out the other week and she was saying, oh, I read in The Times or something, she said that women shouldn't wear skinny jeans past 50. Mm. Who the hell are you listening to on that? Mm. Who the hell is writing that? That's someone sitting in an office thinking, I've got to churn out something. <laughs> you know that. They've got, I've got a nice piece. I've got to put one out each day. It's just shocking. And it's women doing it to women. We basically have an indus- a fashion industry and a wider cultural industry in which we believe taste is acquired, not earned or learned. So, for example, a lot, most of the people that work in the fashion industry went to private school. Most of the people that work in journalism went to private school. Like I would be sitting in an office with literal like aristocratic descendants and be like just so confused because I'd never met these people in my life before. I'd never met anyone like it. And that's when I realised it wasn't, you know, fashion to these people and to this industry wasn't about freedom, it was about projection and power because the longer that they could project that their ideas of taste were the right one, the more power they had over us and the less the industry would change because good taste essentially also equals whiteness, it equals skinniness, it equals richness and it equals all of these things that are classist, like every ist you can think of and it's because those people want to retain their power. Mm. And that power being those people... Where? At the top of anything, of industry, the designers, the big corporations that own the designers, the owners of the magazines. Exactly, like you've nailed it. And I always find it so disheartening because there's always a poster person, like a poster working class designer or a poster fat model or a poster editor that came from nothing has now made it that kind of has this illusion that the industry is very welcoming and like provides people the opportunity to make their dreams come true and then you get in there and it's absolutely not the case and you have to assimilate if you want to fit in and kind of you know yeah I've definitely found myself echoing these richer people but knowing I would never be them like knowing I couldn't afford those clothes. Yeah and it's interesting here because you talk about trickle up culture and I was quite fascinated because you know I remember when the trickle up culture did change when it's basically the street influence that changed but I'm going to read this because it's it's beautifully written and it's a little bit of a history for anyone listening because I think this is deeply important. You talk about 50s and 60s the trickle down theory prevailed working class people were considered too culturally lacking to pioneer or create and the upper classes dictated fashion trends and beauty norms and then worked their way down into mainstream this is similar on how the high street operates which we now Mew Mew Runway will put out what they have six months later we'll see it in H&M or a high street brand however trickle up theory started to become culturally relevant in contemporary arts and culture it refers to trends originating in working class or marginalised cultures that then penetrate class barriers and are adopted by those in upper echelons of society okay here's the question you subsequently in your magazine have worked with people like valentino and so forth are you not playing that same game by working with them yes Because you've trickled up, (laughs) you're trickling up and you're getting out there and then they come and say, hey, come on, Valentina, let's talk about this. I think there's definitely, that can be argued for sure. It's not me being offensive to you, by the way. I I really want to see how we can do this. I am with you on this, how we can genuinely make a breakthrough and break down the system. 
I believe essentially that like the power structures that sit at the top of Condé Nast or at the top of wherever and at the top of LVMH, change yeah. can't be orchestrated by them. It just can't be. They have too much skin in the game. To orchestrate real change, they lose their power. And that's not to say we should stop working. Like we can't kill all the luxury houses off, as in fashion houses, not like the ones you live in. Um, we can't do that. Like the, But I wish we could. <laughs> I do wish we could. Mm. But I think what we need to do is like address who we are putting our cultural cachet into when we buy into these certain things. So, for example, if polyester gets a contract, you know that money is directly going to working class women, women of colour, like gender non-conforming women, like my team, basically. You a bit of a Robin Hood. <laughs> no, because also I don't really make any money myself still. Um, You're paying I, yourself, though. Yeah, I only started paying myself last November and I still only pay myself a part-time wage. So it's my priority is always to go to the contributors because it's a magazine. Like, it's not as if I'm an artist, you know. I'm a writer, so I write if I, if I make money. But why should I do a shoot? that the photographer's not being paid for, that these people aren't being paid for when I'm just the one publishing it. Do you know what I mean? So I do see myself as a kind of vessel when it comes to polyester, which I think is why the book was such an interesting um, exercise in like self-realisation. But I think for things to change, we really just have to hand over the keys. And at the end of the day, we need money to do that. So in terms of like working with Valentino... People wouldn't bat an eyelid if, like, a trust fund girl got a million off her parents to start up a magazine. Do you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't interrogate, oh, he's a banker, so you're taking that money from there and it's a bad power structure. But the means that I can do it is by working with these houses and trying to, like, push for change. So, for example, we work with Monkey, which is part of H&M Group, and we implement a queer creative fund for them. So they're putting money back into the queer community and all of these things. I think it's complicated and I think there's no good answers. There is no, that's <laughs> the truth of it. It is. And I think as long as you're going into it with an intent that is the end goal, mm. I am going to get here and you're going to be part of this. And it might be that you do change their perceptions on the way. Um, when you're going out there with these challenges, who are you being met with most resistance or aren't you? You know, if you're looking at the landscape, where do you see the resistance and the energy? Is it in these luxury houses, in the big fashion groups, where that power is? Partly. Mm. I think they are coming round to it a bit more, definitely with, yeah, the Valentino project. I mean, that is the only big house we've done. Like We've done a lot of other projects for other things, but they were really good. And I think there is still resistance there. And ultimately, I think fashion, London fashion in particular, is still controlled by like a small group of people that decide what's cool, what's not cool, blah, 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 blah. And polyester still exists not in that group. Like, it just doesn't. <laughs> and how do you feel about mass fashion, fast fashion, our planet? I think it's difficult. Uh, I think it's obviously not healthy <laughs> for the planet. I think there's also many obstacles that prevent people from shopping sustainably, like whether it's size. Like, I mean, shopping as a fat person is rubbish across the board, let alone when you're then trying to be, like, eco and sustainable and all of these things. There's also class and, like... I know so much joy that came from, like, my mum being able to go down to Primark and buy something nice. Like, that's something that's deeply ingrained <laughs> in my family as a means of, like, you know, feeling better. And it's not, like, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think we can go on. But I also don't think we have many 
viable alternative routes because we have greenwashing from the fast fashion houses. I mean, we have like murky sustainability from the luxuries. Like, do we even really know if it's sustainable? We don't. Like, it's assumed because of the price tag, but we don't. So I've always, you know, been like a big secondhand vintage person. And I think big industry change is needed there. And at Polyester, we are very like wary to work with someone who is extremely fast fashion. Mm. But then it's like, so how as a publication do you counter that? So for us, it's working with graduate designers. It's working with small designers. Because for so long, even when it was diversity with fat people, it'd be like, okay, you have a fat person, but they have to be naked because there's no clothes for them to wear. So it's yeah, like, it's all in a swimsuit. Exactly, <laughs> underwear or naked. So it's like, how do we seek out the designers that are actually doing this work? When I ever speak to great women who are on this journey, and men, men who are sort of evolved and, and in touch with their, their feminine power, they always talk about the storytelling. And it is the narratives that we grew up with, isn't it? It's the stories that are told to us. And... Uh, your story, your personal story, is a story of reclaiming your narrative. And I suppose, do you ever think about what the old stories are that we need to retell? Because often we think we're being deeply progressive, but actually so much of this has gone well before us. Exactly. You know, I think it's really important to constantly be re-examining our history and especially the history of social movements, because especially with the internet, lots of people my age or younger or a bit older could think they were the first person to have that thought and they're and their friends (laughs) were the first person to do it. And it's like simply not the case. And so when I was researching the book, I found it so interesting to go back to even like the suffragettes and found out that they use lipstick and corsets and all of these things as part of their political propaganda. And really, we have had this relationship between body image and feminism and social justice for like as long as we have had these movements themselves you know and like Riot Girl was very inspirational to me when I started polyester and that whole zine movement made me want to start my own zine. Like a girl did you say? Riot Girl. Riot Girl what's that? So it was like a movement that was in America mostly late 90s early noughties and it was Bikini Kill and Babes in Toyland and all of these kind of um, female punk bands that had this genre called Riot Girl but they also made zines alongside it so every gig you could get zines and they kind of had like editors letters from the singer in the band but then contributors and it was all very like cut and paste traditional punk aesthetic I mentioned in the intro the double-edged sword of social media and uh, it's a utopia of democracy, you know, on one hand and and a place where also counterculture, like you've started, can thrive. But it's also, you know, a dangerous echo chamber. I I was reading your bit where you said girls such as Alexa Chun, Corey Kennedy, Sky Ferreira and Peaches Geldof were the last of their kind in the sense that they rose to superstardom solely under the watchful eye of the male-gaze-driven mainstream media. They rarely had the power to exercise their own voices and were largely seen as counterparts to brilliant men, often in bands, leaving them doomed to forever exist as muses. Dissatisfied with what we were being offered in terms of role models, young women online, armed with cameras, laptops, chose to rally against a culture that has told us to be stared at rather than listened to. Do you think you're going forward with that? That's literally, we're talking, what, Lexa Charm, Corey, 10 years ago, even less. Mm-hmm. I really hope so. I think it's definitely gotten more confusing since I came of age on the internet. Like, I think I was around 21 when Instagram really blew up. And before that, it was Tumblr. And I think we're in a bad place, like subculturally, culturally, all of it, because we are so individualist. And Instagram has really made way for that. So Instagram has borne all of these influencers that can also be feminist influencers. But at the end of the day, 
their meter for success is metrics and how many people engage yeah. with them. And I think that really encourages us to, or those influencers to like overshare, to say all of these things, but they're not a group movement. It's one person. It felt like the internet could democratize celebrities or whatever, but we've kind of just gone in a circle. We're back to that with influencers. And it's a bit more dangerous now because social politics are in the mix and like people can be a feminist influencer by selling pants or like by selling vibrators or whatever and not actually have to do any of the community work. And I think with the book and with my work in general, if I am talking about these broader subjects, it's always about going back to the community. So how do we change things for everyone, not just for like that one person? Yeah. And on that, you talk about your exasperation of you know, authenticity. Mm -hmm. I literally, I hear it, every brand that ever comes into it, we want to be authentic. You think, yeah, right. So, But do you explain that to me? You talk about authenticity versus earnestness. Right. So I think, you know, there's this language around social media and Instagram in particular where we think we're being authentic and maybe it's a person being like, oh, I was really depressed, but now I'm coming out of it. Or oh, I was feeling really bad about myself today, but then I put this thing on and I feel better. And we think... That is authentic, but it's not because it's calculated. It's a caption. You have to sit down. You have to write it. And by placing authenticity as the holiest thing you can do, we're really giving ourselves a disservice because it's impossible in online spaces where we're curating our lives down to like the minute because you're consciously sitting down and deciding what to project of yourself. So it's always going to be this. Be like, I mean, a poet or a writer would sit down and write, you know, from, and they're projecting themselves. That's very true. But I don't. I think that's why there is like farce in yearning for authenticity because we're never seeing it for anyone, from anyone. And by placing it on this ultimate pedestal of like something's only valid if it's authentic, something's only like real if it's authentic, it's totally, I just don't think it's true. I think that, you know, we can choose the parts of our lives we want to share, we cannot, but it becomes more calculated on Instagram, for example, when it's an influencer that is projecting this fear of authenticity to essentially make money. Like, I think that's a bit insidious. And I don't think it's like emotional manipulation, almost like we're buying into this person that we think we know very intimately. But really, we're, we're we only know what they show us. Yes, but that, I think that's a really big bar to live up to. And I get completely what you're saying, because it's saying that everything that you do has to come from that place of truth, everything. And that's a big thing to live up to, isn't it? You're saying that some of the stuff that they show us isn't authentic, even saying, I'm going to tell you because I'm feeling low today, that the fact that they've sat down and created that dialogue in itself isn't authentic. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's that we don't interrogate our urge to do this or what we're trying to gain from it. Well, that's I get. Right. Now, that I totally get. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this podcast? Why am I sitting here with you? Because I believe truly in creating a better and more beautiful world. And I believe at the heart of that better and more beautiful world is the power of the feminine, which has been suppressed and kicked the shit out of. And I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, totally. And I think with the authenticity thing and then like trying to turn to earnestness, that kind of goes back to the taste thing I was saying as well. So mm. it's like you can feel embarrassed maybe commenting on someone's thing online or like, I know, like after I've had a glass of wine, I'm replying to everyone's stories left, right and centre. Oh, you look beautiful. You look gorgeous. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then you're embarrassed. And you're thinking maybe they don't look beautiful. <laughs> we do that in life, don't we? You're embarrassed. But really, I think we should be embracing more of these like messy slip ups we have online is basically yeah. what I'm saying of like living online as we live in person, which is complicated and not entirely curated and 
we're going to do things that a week later we want to go and delete. We're going to have like weird conversations with people in our DMs. I think we need to embrace that rather than being like, I need to be honest with my truth. So I'm going to put this out there and expect a certain response. Does do that make sense? Yeah, no, I get that. And I'm wondering whether there's a level of uh, that we just overshare and that we've pushed ourselves into this as well. And so do you have hope? I think I'd have a huge amount of hope if I was you at your age. I think that's the thing. Everything I do comes from this place of optimism. Yeah. It comes from the fact I want things to be better. I don't think there's a point pointing out the bad in something going, oh, look at that, if you can't see a better way, because otherwise it's just miserable. You live a miserable life, right? I think that's a huge... It is hard sometimes to see another way, though, isn't it? It take, That's what all our energy is constantly on, isn't it? Of course. And I think that's why everything I do with polyester, for example, is about, OK, yeah, things are bad. It's not the greatest cultural landscape, political landscape. No. But we need joy. We need hope in those moments. For example, when we were talking about body positivity on the high street and it's like okay yeah I want to shoot fat women but I want them to be gorgeous like I want them to look good like you want to look at that person and be like they look amazing and we need those moments like as people that exist against adversity and I don't think it's necessarily our job like that's how we make change like through showing a better way showing not telling I suppose and telling both mm. I do both <laughs> mm. Mm. and I suppose when you look at yourself now and you compare your life to the way others live and, and even your own life before Crohn's disease, what do you see now? Going back to a little girl who was bullied when she went in dressed as a little goth and wanted to make her own stuff. <laughs> That's just, you know. Yeah, I'm definitely very proud of myself. I think whenever I talk to my mum or whatever, and it's very obvious that I've achieved quite a lot and I feel very lucky for that all the time and I don't take it for granted at all. Because at the end of the day, we have really good jobs. Like people like us have really nice, fun jobs. We do. We get to like make nice imagery and talk to people, and it's like really a joy. And that can be hard to recognise sometimes when you're working all the time or doing whatever. But that's something I definitely always try and hold with me. Oh, keep burning <laughs> that light. We will follow. It's wonderful, and it's wonderful to have you on today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. That's very polite. Your mum taught you that, didn't she? <laughs> yeah. That matriarchy. Very good. Very much for having me. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.